Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Karen Gentry, the author of the book Disordered Violence, How Gender, Race, and Heteronormativity Structure Terrorism. Karen Gentry is a professor in the School of International Relations at the University of St. Andrews. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How did this book come about, and how did you become interested in writing on this topic? Sure. So I'll start with the second question first. Um, I've been researching terrorism for almost 20 years. I started looking at women's participation in far-left groups and then moved into looking more broadly at gender and how we understand terrorism through a gendered lens. And so then mainly... I would say the first half of my career really focused then on women more broadly. So not just far left organizations, but ethno-nationalist groups, far right, radical Islamist. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized that it's not just that women's participation was gendered or only seen through their relationship with how we understand femininity, but that men's participation was gendered that terrorist organizations themselves were gendered and how their violence was seen was all in this gendered light. And I can unpack that if you'd like me to later. But the more I worked in the area, particularly as radical Islamism became such an enormous focus within terrorism studies, I realized that gender didn't operate alone in how we understand terrorism and that it was joined by race and then by heteronormativity amongst other things, class, geopolitical location, et cetera. And the book idea came about probably in about 2015, 2016. And I thought it would be limited to what I was calling gendered neo-orientalism. So how gender worked with neo-orientalism. And I began to write it and was stuck because I felt like I'd already said this, other people had said this, and it wasn't quite digging deep enough. And as I tried to work through my writer's block and that immensely frustrating feeling of combating it, I realized it's because it's so much more that if we think about neo-Orientalism as a long-standing critical perspective on how we understand many, many different things related to primarily the Middle East and to Muslims and how uh, the West perceives them and constructs them in a very particular, stereotypical, often quite negative light. And gender has a relationship with that. But in terrorism studies, you know, we've really been looking at radical Islamism since September 11th, although there was work before that, and it became a hyper-focus. And I've critiqued that hyper-focus for a very long time, but I realized that our problems in terrorism studies with race, and gender and class and heteronormativity go back further than September 11th. And so I wanted to really try to figure out how, you know, if terrorism studies has existed since about the 1970s, how the field itself is constructed upon gender, race, class, heteronormative lines. And, um, and that's, so that's where the book came from, is that new orientalism was just not enough anymore, that we needed to understand this is a bigger, deeper issue. So when you discuss in the book how terrorism has been defined and some of the assumptions inherent in commonly held characterization, why is the definition of terrorism itself such an important topic to unpack further? Sure. I mean, one, I I hate the discussion about the definition of terrorism. If anyone picks up a terrorism studies book or article, it begins with some sort of In this article, I'm defining it in this way, although we know that this is contentious and other people don't believe that. And 
Right. And I even tell my students just don't, don't engage with it. Just kind of set out exactly what you need to, but you don't need to do a lit review of all the debates about the definition. So I even knew that here I am about to spend a chapter on it. And I was like, oh, I'm just contributing to this lengthy, lengthy conversation. So I think the reason why we have such a lengthy conversation is that we we know, even if we don't know, to kind of borrow from Rumsfeld, that to define terrorism is to take a stance that is that is built upon the very problematic premises that I'm trying to critique in the book. And so that as soon as we begin to kind of very strictly define terrorism, or maybe sometimes even openly, like have a very broad definition, that that somehow engages um, the racialization of terrorism. It engages the gendering of terrorism. It engages the kind of heteronormativity of terrorism. And that, you know, when I'm kind of playing with queer theory in the book and talking about heteronormativity, I'm talking about that we need to, that there's this kind of need to see the world in very strict binaries of very black and white, you know, good and evil, and then of counter-terrorist versus terrorist. And so then we want to seek a definition because it tells us who is the good and who is the bad and makes it very clear. But one thing that any student of terrorism knows is that it's very gray and that there isn't necessarily a very clear delineation between counterterrorism and and terrorist or counterterrorist and terrorist I should say and that the more that we strive to make that clear delineation the more kind of harm we're doing and so that I spend a lot of time on the definition debate trying to unpack the power dynamics that are inherent in trying to arrive at a definition and and to really say that this is this is the problem and and so that I don't think we'll ever find a definition that everyone agrees on and I think we need to stop trying. Instead, I think we need to own up to those power dynamics and begin to address them. And maybe then we kind of get somewhere. Yeah, and those power dynamics, that really relates to how you discuss that terrorism studies and international relations is really centered in this Westphalian framework in terms of yeah. what is state versus non-state, these binaries again, of what violence is okay and what violence is not okay. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So we have a few myths in international relations. Um, And one of those myths is 1648, and that the international state system was born out of the treaties of Westphalia that ended the Thirty Years' War. Um, And that set up that states were sovereign and had the legitimate use of the monopoly on violence. And so that then states were the only ones who had the right to use violence. And so then that became the military and police forces within those states. And anyone operating outside of that framework was using violence illegitimately. And so there we already have a binary, right, of the state who gets to use violence and the non-state actor who doesn't. And that I walk through kind of an argument that I've made through some of the work I did on the just war tradition and looking at how states were not just legal authorities, but also became moral authorities. So then violence got associated with with morality, right? States had the kind of a moral use of violence, and that the non-state actors who used violence became immoral and illegitimate, and that we've never been able to kind of divorce ourselves from that frame and recognize that non-state actors, terrorist groups, may actually have a legitimate use of violence. And there are some great books on this, including uh, Terry Tochi's The Other War, The Other's War. And it's just a fantastic book that kind of takes us through some of that, that framework. You've highlighted this, not just in the title, but kind of in some of the questions we've already discussed, this idea of intersectionality. Can you talk about how this concept is useful in terrorism studies? So intersectionality is very much a feminist concept. And it arose in the 1970s and 80s from Black feminism. And that Black feminist felt very locked out of the civil rights movement, which was led primarily by men to address men's issues. Well, 
think they were trying to do a broad address, but it left women out of the picture. And then the women's movement, the left black women out. And there is a real sense of frustration that black women's needs in the United States were not being addressed at all. And so we had out of Boston, the Combahee River Collective um, published their statement in the late 1970s. And then Kimberly Crenshaw, um, a legal scholar, began to write on intersectionality in academic work. And so the argument is, is that when a woman is, when a woman of color, when a Black woman is harmed, we may not know where that harm comes from. Does it stem from the fact that she's a woman or does it stem from the fact that she's Black? And that, it, and it's so that these, that race and gender intersect and that there can be a multi- multitude of intersections, right? So that's, again, where class comes in. It's where religion might come in, you know, and it can kind of go on. And it's been critiqued that you can just kind of keep adding ways that harm comes at us. And, and I, I actually don't think that's a problem. I think we do need to look at multiple ways that harm impacts and affects people. I don't think that feminism can work anymore unless it is an intersectional feminism. We have to take account of not just gender, but race, class, et cetera. And then in terrorism studies and within terrorism, it just became clear to me, as I said, kind of in, the, in my first answer, that I couldn't be a feminist looking at terrorism anymore without looking at, at race. Primarily, that's what spoke to me first, but later it became um, heteronormativity as well. And I think something that I really wanted to try to tease out in the book and I didn't have space for was how class worked. And that if we think about terrorism studies coming out of the university and from well-educated scholars, what is their background, right? And, you know, what are their assumptions about class that are feeding in? And I, I, you know, I, I don't even know how you'd undertake that, but I think it'd be quite fascinating to do that. So I think there's a lot about how we understand terrorism has to do with how we understand how these different power structures work. And so again, power structures being gender, race, heteronormativity, class, and how they impact our, and just our inherent understanding of the world and then as we kind of dive down onto an issue here, terrorism, how we understand terrorism. How does the classification of different types of violence reflect those power structures in the state? What I try to work through in the first few chapters is how, you know, the state, which is the kind of actor that's been able to determine the illegitimate use of violence, so right, so therefore the terrorist actor. There, the state is also dependent upon, right, gendered ideas of citizenship and of morality and of engagement, right? That, you know, we know that women haven't had the right to vote for very long, in all honesty, right? That we know that that people of color and from different ethnic backgrounds have not had full access to citizen rights for very long either. And in some places of the world, they still don't. And that we know that gay rights continues to be a really significant issue. So then that the state is dependent upon different forms of power in order to kind of maintain itself. So when it comes to how it classifies violence and terrorism, that that plays out. So if we think about that legitimacy and illegitimacy, justice and injustice of rationality and irrationality, that these terms are gendered, they are also raced, and they are also dependent upon heteronormative ideas. So then when we say them, we say them with this weight of power structures behind us or behind behind the words. So then when they get applied to terrorism and to terrorist actors, that automatically kind of imbues some sense of of okayness or acceptability or not. So let me give an example. So I was giving an online lecture last week 
on kind of women in terrorism and kind of taking us through the history of women's involvement in terrorism and that people are often surprised that women have participated in what we know of as modern terrorism since modern terrorism was defined, right? So I start with the kind of late 1800s in Europe and Russia and then move us forward. And when I was talking about far-right terrorism, I outright compared the women in the United States who support the alt-right with the women who joined ISIS in Syria and Iraq. That if you look at the, the ideology that both of the groups espouse about very specific activities for men and women, um, and that particularly women are supposed to be mothers and wives and support help and, you know, to create a good, new, clean nation, that the language on both sides is very, very similar. And the roles that they script for women, again, mothers and wives, is very, very similar. And so then I put up photos of the, what the British uh, media calls the Bethnal Green Girls, and they were three uh, 15-year-old young women who um, took their passports, uh, flew to Turkey, walked across the border into Syria, married ISIS fighters. One woman has survived. She has lost three children. She's now a widow. She'd like to be repatriated to the UK. It's been very contentious because in, in the UK has tried to block her from returning um, because she's a foreign fighter. And then I put up a picture of Lana Loktoff, and she's um, a woman, a public speaker, I think a blogger in the U.S., supportive of the alt-right. And again, the language that she espouses is very, very similar for a very different cause, but very similar to what you see out of ISIS. And there was a comment that I couldn't possibly compare Lana Loktoff with ISIS women. Um, or I think they even said jihadi brides, because Lana's just a political commentator, and I think the implication is that Lana's not been violent. Well, the ISIS brides weren't also necessarily violent, but both support a violent movement. And, and so then it's, why is it that Lana gets excused, right? A white blonde woman gets excused for supporting a violent movement, but Shamima Begum, who is, um, you know, a brown Muslim woman, does not. And I think that tells us a lot about how we think about terrorism. Another example that I start with in the book is about the Austin bomber, which was in 2018. It was the, the mail bombs that were being delivered by FedEx. Um, they started in East Austin, and East Austin has historically been um, a black neighborhood. It's becoming gentrified now. And a very young, well, a, a very young man, black man was killed by one of the bombs. Very promising future for him. And the Austin police refused to rule out that he wasn't actually the bomber and that it didn't actually explode on him when he was putting it together. Um, and to me, this is an immediate, you know, there's no evidence. They've come out and said it. Very racialized to me. When in reality, the bomber was a young white man from a very Christian background. I think he had been homeschooled um, and that he then detonates himself, it seems, on the interstate when he's in a police chase. And then when the police come back and kind of say it's over, he's dead, they also go on to say something about we need to respect that he was a very troubled young man and we kind of need to give him him and his family some grace at this time, which was kind of the total opposite script they were using when they were talking about it possibly being a Black man, right? And so I think that when we talk about terrorism, we have to understand how we use the label um, and how it gets applied to different people um, unequally and how often that falls along these racialized lines and gendered lines. and etc. In chapter two, you explore the role of justice and rule of law in terrorism studies. 
How is our concept of justice important to evaluate with a gendered lens? Yeah, so it's, um, there's a really, it's really the title of where the title of the book comes from. And people have not liked the title of the book, and I've just been like, tough, but because it was so important to me. So there are two key feminist thinkers that help with this, and that's Jean Elshtain and Carol Pateman. And Jean was one of the leading feminist theorists in IR until the time of her death a few years ago. And her first book was Public Man, Private Woman, 1980-1981. And she works through how we've conceived, you know, public life to be a very masculine domain, right? It's for men, government, business, higher education, that this is the domain of men. This is where rational, logical thought is held, right? And then so then the private, the feminine domain for women, nurturing, peaceable, loving, rearing small children, et cetera. And so she begins to walk us through where this stems from in Greek thought and how we've adopted it into Western life and into our practices, our political practices. Carol Pateman in The Disorder of Women is an, it's an article that just is so important in my, my thinking and then also in my teaching, and I'll explain how that works in a minute, breaks this down in how we understand justice. And that because justice is very firmly rooted in the public. And that, so then it's a very masculine concept. And justice is, justice can only work if we have access to rational thinking. It is the concept upon which a democracy rests or one of the concepts upon which a democracy rests. It is something that citizens kind of are expected to exercise, but particularly our rule of law is expected to exercise. And we can't arrive at justice without, again, this rational thinking and logical thought. Well, according to Greek thought, women can't be rational thinkers. Women don't have access to rationality. So women don't have access to justice. And then, so, and that's one reason why we have a hard time always conceiving of women as, right, good politicians, right? Of, you know, that we're still struggling to elect a woman to the presidency in the United States. It comes down to this idea of how we've conceived of the public, of government, and of justice. And in Pateman's work, she has this passage that I quote in that chapter where she goes through and talks about how she's talking kind of facetiously, right, about how women, you know, are the source of disorder, that if they were to kind of make it into government, everything would break down and we'd see chaos and disorder and disarray. We'd see injustice. And I assign this to my students halfway through the semester in my gender and terrorism class. So for the first half, we've talked about feminist theory. We've talked about some methodology. And we've begun to drill down deeper and deeper on how, gen- how gender and violence work together. So in the midway point, I assigned the disorder of, of women And we're reading through it and we talk about it. And then I start switching out the word woman with terrorist and how much it makes sense, right? That it, that terrorists are the source of disorder, that terrorists are the source of chaos, that if they were to win, we'd see. And that how it really captures this very exceptionalized language we use for terrorists and that we see terrorist violence as being so, so deeply threatening. Beyond any other violence, it is threatening. So I'm trying, what I'm trying to do with that is to kind of dig into what it is that we find so threatening and why we see them as being so disordered and their violence as so disordered. And that has a lot to do with how we understand justice but also legitimacy and legitimate use of violence and, um, and how we've constructed who gets to act and when they get to act. As I was reading the book and, and you talk about 
when and there's an act of terrorism and there's that implicit rationality that you were discussing. So with that in mind, there's this assumption that those actions will be effective because they have this rational basis of choice and a desired outcome. So I thought, well, how would you examine that and who gets to decide what's effective? Because I think in the, in the book even, what may seem effective for a non-state actor committing violence or terrorism their in-state goal may not be the same as how it's perceived by the target. So just interested in your thoughts on how do you think about the effectiveness of terrorism in in this rationality framework that a lot of these radicalization and and terrorism studies models are based on? I think that it, that what you've just brought out about this idea that we're going to have different expectations about what we see as effective, we're we're just going, we're probably going to see effectiveness quite differently. And so that we can't, that what we see as rational behavior, right, which is kind of nonviolence, of voting, of working to make change, may be seen as just completely and wholly ineffective to other communities and to other people. And that for them, that violence becomes the way that they see as making change. The only way perhaps that they see as making change. Perhaps it may be even the only avenue open to them. And that when we begin to say, well, that's not, that's not rational or that's not credible, we begin to automatically denigrate any kind of effectiveness. And I would say that even though I'm asking people to maybe see this violence differently, I think I also want to be really clear that I'm not okay with the violence. And I feel like that's something I have to say at some point throughout many of my talks that, you know, that I'm fairly close to being a pacifist myself. But I think that if we, if we really want to understand what terrorism is about, we have to understand what has driven people to this point. And so then it's about saying, maybe trying to step out of, outside of this rational framework that we're so invested in in the West and try to understand why a community might be so frustrated, marginalized, disenfranchised that this becomes the answer open to them. So I wanted to ask you about gender identity and how is that embedded in how we evaluate terrorist actors? It begins with understanding that, you know, we've in the West often constructed gender to be this binary between masculinity and femininity, and that men are supposed to be masculine and that women are supposed to be feminine, and that we set these expectations up on bodies. And we typically think about it in relationship to people, but that organizations also get gendered, and I can kind of work through that in a minute. But with masculinity, we associate what I've, some of what I've already talked about, rationality, logic, assertiveness, or even aggression, perhaps even an affinity to violence. And then to femininity, we assert the opposite, right? If they're a binary, they're in complete kind of opposition to each other. So women are emotional, nurturing, and that with emotion comes an in an inability to access rationality or logic, that with nurturing comes a peaceability so that they're not going to be violent. So that in terrorism, that so if we already know that within masculinity, we see some violence, within femininity, we see no violence, that we're already kind of setting up an issue, right? And that's been the issue that's kind of plagued militaries, right? And whether or not women should be allowed to participate in the military and to what extent they should be allowed to participate. So then when it comes to terrorism, you know, it's almost kind of seen as, of course, men are terrorists, right? Um, Or of course, men might use violence. And that, and of course, some men may use violence, right? And that particularly if if they're brown men, then of course they might already be more prone to violence because then we enter into this racialization of of people and that in a racialization of people, we've already begun to accept that 
white people can control how they use violence, but that we haven't, um, that, but what that means is that brown people cannot, right? And that I don't agree with any of this, by the way, but that this is kind of how we've ordered society. And so when we begin to see women participate in violence, we don't quite know what to do with it. And that's where most of my career, or that's where my career started with, was this assumption that women couldn't possibly participate in terrorism because they believed in the political cause behind the violence or that drove the violence, that it must be that women were kind of suckered in by their romantic partner or that they must have been crazy. And so this is the way that they're acting out their instability, that there, there must be something inherently wrong with a woman who participates in terrorism. And so that's why it's so important to me to kind of draw people through the history of women's participation, that we've seen it everywhere, and that they're, you know, often quite involved in, in all areas of a terrorist group. So that's, that's the gendering, right? So what I've already talked about is that, you know, we've got this layer of, you know, um, we can kind of accept that a man's going to be ter- a terrorist, but we can't accept that a woman's going to be a terrorist. But then if we kind of come take another step up on the layer, okay, so a man might be a terrorist and we can kind of accept that, but we don't accept his violence, right? We don't accept terrorist violence because terrorist violence is illegitimate and immoral. And so then that's a gendered layer. And so therefore that terrorist violence is delegitimized is how terrorist activity or terrorist organization as an actor becomes gendered, right? And so that especially if we contrast the illegitimate terrorist organization against the legitimacy of the state, that what happens is we've created this hierarchy that is often dependent upon kind of a gendered understanding and quite often a racialized understanding. So then it sets kind of this state up as this beacon of legitimacy and morality and of righteousness and the terrorist organization as having no access to any of that. And so then the state becomes this masculine actor and the terrorist organization is this this feminized, right, or this devalorized actor. And that's, that's a gendered structure beginning to unfold. So when you're talking about these different actors, it's not so much literal gender, but you're looking at the how agency is perceived or how control is perceived and how that characterizes how we view different types of violence. Is that right? Yes. When we say gender, we want to assign it to a person who looks like a man or a woman, right? We want it to be an individual. And that gender is far, far more complex than, than that and that individual actor. And that what... What feminists understand is that gender is this operation of power, and it's how we assign an understanding to individuals, but it's also how we assign an an understanding to different actors or groups or ideas. And so that, again, that's that unfolding of a gender structure is that it's embedded in our very kind of... Um, in our in our very knowledge center of of what makes something inherently kind of more worthy of kind of a man's attention or of a woman's attention. It's why we have a problem with getting women into STEM, right? If girls in in elementary school hit what fourth or fifth grade, and they're being gendered out of the not like out, the the assumption becomes they don't have the intellectual capacity to do this, right? And so girls begin to lose interest in STEM. And so that's a gendered function, that's a gendered structure that we have to overcome if we want to encourage girls into sciences, technology, and math. And so equally is this gendered assumption of how we understand here violence or the state or how different actors undertake violence. And this really goes back to some of your observations about intersectionality. And I wanted to see if you could talk about how those patterns have affected how right-wing terrorism has been viewed in the United States. We've 
kind of gone to this really weird point in the U.S. of where we've begun to, I mean, I think we've always turned a blind eye to some white violence or to a lot of white violence, really. If we look at terrorism studies and we look at counterterrorism activities, that even in the 70s and 80s, you know, there was, there was counterterrorism activity against the KKK, right, against Aryan nations, against neo-Nazis, right? And this would all be white violence, racialized white violence, terrorist violence. And I think it got to the point where we thought in the United States, we no longer had a problem with white violence of that kind, of organized white violence, that somehow it had been defeated, um, even though we had David Koresh and the Branch Davidians or Ruby Ridge, and we began to, I think, particularly with the rise of radical Islamism, really begin to center terrorism around non-white actors and tie terrorism almost inextricably to people of color and that we somehow could no longer see that other people could be terrorists too. Um, because I think we thought we had it kind of locked down and because we began to tie terrorism to radical Islamism and to people of color, the alt-right was really, I think, able to grow unchecked. And, and really just, and it may, be not, well, it's, it may even be broader than just the alt-right because I'm also thinking about the uh, Malheur um, nature reserve in Oregon, right? And that that was taken over by a group of white men who may not necessarily identify as alt-right, maybe share some characteristics, but, you know, they held a federal land reserve for six weeks with guns, with the threat of force, um, had a police chase that ended in injury, and still were not charged with terrorism, right? And then were acquitted of any criminal activity. Like that to me is so bizarre because if that had been a group of brown men holding that, it would have ended very differently. And so that what we've seen, I think, grow up in the United States is a very different response to how we understand white and black citizens. But we have a real problem with all right violence and it's growing and we see it with um, what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, what Dylan Roof did in Charleston and that, you know, that the FBI response was not necessarily to investigate white extremism but that they began investigating black extremism and saying that this is a growing threat in the United States. And that to me is just fundamentally bizarre that we don't have kind of, that we didn't have an initial coherent kind of federal response to the alt-right. Instead, we're trying to say, no, no, really, it's these people of color who are going to be the problem. And that's to what we would call a, a deflection right, of continuing to think that, you know, the people who hold the power, which in the United States are, is white people, are the ones who don't have a problem, right, and that they, there's an impunity there, and that it continues to put it back on those who are disempowered and disenfranchised. What I think is happening is a deflection because we don't know how to understand terrorism if it is not tied to people of color. You talk about a concept called misogynistic terrorism, and also you mention the role of domestic violence. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is and what you observed? Sure. So I think this is actually a very similar phenomenon to what I'm talking about with the alt-right and deflection. In family therapy circles that for decades, there's been an idea of patriarchal terrorism, and that it began with two scholars looking into how domestic violence differs 
from, say, violence at the pub on a Saturday night. And that domestic violence they saw as quite cyclical. It was about controlling, and they were very focused on women at this time. Um, and that it, and that men were controlling women through violence, through financial control, um, through threat of violence, etc. And that he was kind of this very aggressive distillation of kind of patriarchal values within the whole. And so they began to call it patriarchal terrorism kind of as this kind of field of thought began to develop. So that it was terrorism because it was uh, violence that was used to control a population. And then it is, and so if we even had to have a basic definition of terrorism, it would be that it is, there's a political goal and that it's used to kind of create fear or coercion within a population. So then the political element of this is that it was based on patriarchal ideas. And so that it was to continue to uphold the system of of patriarchy. So I wanted to kind of bring this to the main stream of terrorism studies about almost 10 years ago now. And what was interesting to me is that um, when I tried to get it published, I would get kind of this back, back this response, but this has already been done. Well, yes, it had been done. It had been done in these journals, kind of family therapy journals, sociology journals, some human geographers were working on it, but it had not been done in terrorism studies and that I could not get it through the door of any of the presses. And really kind of taking terrorism studies ideas about definition and applying it to what um, this this field of thought was saying. So I thought I was already quite interested in why terrorism studies didn't want to accept the idea of patriarchal terrorism, right? But um, as I said, there were human geographers, Rachel Payne at the uh, University of Durham here in the UK in particular was working on this. And she um, began to talk about it as um, everyday terrorism and still kind of locating it with talking about it as as partly domestic violence, but locating it kind of in the realm of kind of the everyday violence that women face. She places it on the spectrum, but I wanted to kind of take it one step further and just to really argue that it's, it is not just patriarchal, but it's misogyny. So that if patriarchy is about men's rule in society, that misogyny is not just patriarchy, but it is hatred of women. And that we, that women face so much violence in their everyday life, and that this is about coercion and control and, a, and power, right? And of keeping women in a particular place in society. And so that it, it can happen in the home, but it happens outside of the home, this violence, right? It can be seen in the level of abuse women face in social media, and that it can be in that kind of this ownership that men feel towards women's bodies. So I think one really good example of this would happen in Paris, maybe about a year and a half ago, where a man catcalled a woman um, and she told him to shut up and it was caught on CCTV camera and it was right outside of a cafe and he just came back and just, it's like kind of, punched her, I think, across the face, just this massive blow and and then just walked off again, right? And felt this sense of freedom that he could abuse her in that way. And we're talking in front of what, probably 15 or 20 people at the cafe. And so there's this idea of entitlement. And so I really want to begin to explore that and what that looked like in misogynist terrorism, and in particular, and how that looked like within um, incels, this idea of alpha and incels. And so that the incel violence that we're also beginning to see kind of creep up uh, primarily in the U.S. and, and Canada to, to some extent is about kind of men finding a way of kind of asserting their control back over women um, through these different attacks. So 
Elliot Roger and the Isla Vista shootings at the University of Santa Barbara is one of the crispest examples of kind of incel violence. The um, Alec Manassian van attack in Toronto um, is another incel attack. But that this incel thing is not necessarily incel as a language and alpha as a language in describing kind of these ideas about the men who get it all, the alphas and the incels who are just these kind of peons, maybe a new language, but it's capturing still this kind of larger concept of kind of men's entitlement within society and how that entitlement has extended to to using violence against women as a means of control. So you described that you had some pushback when you're exploring some of these ideas about feminist theory in terrorism studies. And some people, you know, may not agree with some of these um, ideas. I wanted to ask you, why do you think people should consider feminist theory when they're when they're examining terrorism? And what ethical duties do you believe a terrorism researcher has to understand violence and potential biases both within the study and within themselves? You know, feminism is the other F word, and it creates in some people this real sense of um, uncertainty. I think they feel like they're going to be attacked. And I don't think feminism is about that. At least for me, it's not. Feminism is very much about exploring how power works, how it harms, how it looks at who is harmed, and why they in particular are being harmed. And so then I think if we are curious as, you know, academics or as broad-minded people or as, you know, you know, just being curious, which is, you know, what Cynthia Enloe, who's a major feminist scholar, talks about is that we're, you know, we want to instill this curiosity in people, then what do you have to lose by actually trying to take some feminism seriously? What harm is it going to do to actually take some feminism seriously? And I kind of ask you, why are you so resistant? Not you, Beth, but kind of to the, the person in general. Why are you so resistant to this? What is it that makes you defensive? And, and, you know, explore that because there are many things in my life that have made me feel defensive, but I owe it to people to explore why that makes me feel defensive. And I think that we, we need to engage that, that sense of unease and, and discover something. And so if we are, you know, hopefully as, as, as these curious public intellectuals, um, as people who want to learn, hopefully we're also curious about power and how power is used to to really, really hurt people. Um, And I think terrorism studies really needs to come to terms with some of the harm it has also engaged with and perpetrated. And so here, here's an avenue to explore that. I'm not trying to attack anyone in particular because I think that this is systemic and I think it is very much taught and that instead I'm asking for this kind of system to hold itself to account. And so then that really brings me also to this, to the second question of kind of what is, what are the ethics that we have in studying this and what should a researcher hold themselves responsible for you know, we put, as an academic, we put ideas out into the world, and those ideas can be manipulated, they can be taken out of context, and they can be used to justify harm. And that in terrorism studies, when we have the ear of governments, and we have the ear of security forces and of the military, we have a real responsibility to make sure that our work is not being used to harm. So to give an example, I was at a military education, let's say workshop, and one of the attendees asked, can someone give me a good example of successful counterterrorism? I think I did put this in the book, and I think I tried to make it as veiled as possible. 
And two people answered, yes, Chechnya and Sri Lanka are good examples of good counterterrorism. And I just nearly fell off my chair because those are two examples that involve genocidal acts, genocide in Sri Lanka indeed, and ethnic cleansing and rape and mass murder. And I just thought that is not what we want to be telling military trainees is good counterterrorism policy. This is not the idea we want to be giving. And so we do have, you know, an ethical responsibility to make sure how we talk about how to resolve violence, how to counter violence, how to to help society is not used to perpetuate further harm. And I think that terrorism studies in particular definitely needs to look at itself and try to unpack where maybe some of that has gone awry. Karen, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you mind sharing what you're working on now? Sure. So I I am currently the head of school um, of international relations. So I'm not working on a lot of research, but I am trying to. So the other research hat that I wear is actually feminist political theology. And right now I'm trying to work on hope. Um, And it really began kind of thinking about where the United States is and trying to think about what the role of hope is in kind of political activism um, and in inspiring change and wanting to see change. So I um, am trying to get back to that um, and particularly given you know, the past six months of the pandemic of where is hope in the pandemic? Where is hope when, you know, the U.S. is looking at 150,000 people dead and, and more to come? Where is hope when we're looking at massive economic catastrophe for, well, a global, it's global. So it's, it's, that's what I'm working on. I don't, quite have a clear vision right now for that project. It's still something I'm trying to explore, but. Great. Well, thank you again for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Disordered violence, how gender, race, and heteronormativity structure terrorism by Karen Gentry is available now from Edinburgh University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.